Well, I want to invite you to get your Bibles. If you're visiting with us or watching on live stream, maybe the first time you're here with us, um, it's our practice to go through a book of the Bible and just let it speak. Um, we believe that the Bible is relevant. We don't have to make it relevant. We just need to find out why and how it's relevant. And that means that we need to spend time opening and unpacking the Word of God. And uh, at present, we are in the book of Exodus. Exodus. And of course, in the book of Exodus, we come to chapter 20, uh, in which we find the Ten Commandments. And uh, we've already gone through the first five commandments. And um, today, we're going to look at the Sixth Commandment. So let me invite you to stand. We're going to read God's Word. We'll pray, and um, we will jump right into our text this morning. Um, our scripture reading this morning is not long. It's four words. And I don't, don't mean to be cute, but they're four words that are pregnant with meaning. And as we read them, um, remember who is saying them, and allow that to kind of settle in you as you prepare your heart for um, the preaching of God's Word. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. You shall not murder. Lord, help us today. This is a text that almost everyone who is brushed up against Christianity is aware of. They, they may not know exactly where it is, but they know that it comes from somewhere in the Bible. And Lord, we who are your children um, have lived with this text through our lives. Um, we have a, a grasp in some way, shape, or form of its meaning. But Lord, help us today to allow you to speak to us. Lord, that we can allow your word to fashion and shape our understanding of what uh, this commandment means. But Lord, most importantly, that we would then seek to honor you uh, in, in keeping this commandment in a way, Lord, that would please you. And uh, Lord, give us wisdom. So Lord, what we are not, would you make us? What we have not, would you give us? And Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? And allow me as your messenger to be faithful to you and to your word, but Lord, to be a mouthpiece for this text so that your people can be strengthened, convicted, um, reoriented to your son, Jesus Christ. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, it's possible that you're coming to this sixth commandment with... Hold on a second here. It's possible you're coming to this sixth commandment with a kind of sense of a spring in your step. And maybe the other commandments you kind of felt a little bit bad about, you felt guilty about some things, but you're coming here and you say, you know what, I've been able to keep this commandment. As I reflect over my life, I just don't know of anyone that I've murdered recently. I mean, that's, you know, it's usually kind of the context. I think if we, we went, you know, across and we talked to everyone in, uh, in our presence here this morning or even on live stream, I doubt very likely that there would be anyone that would confess to being a murderer. And just like all the commandments, however, there is much more to the story, and you might want to think again about how this commandment reveals your guilt. 
Because in the end, we will see that we're all guilty of this command. Every one of us here. And that there's only one man who can claim innocence. And that innocent man was murdered as a result of political maneuvers by his peers, the religious establishment of the day, and the fear of the Roman regional leader by the name of Pilate. Now let me remind you that Exodus 20.13, what we have here, is contained in what's called the second table. If you remember, the first table really are the first four commandments that tell us about our relationship with God. And the second table is more horizontal, talking about our relationship with others. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 13 and verse 9 summarizes um, even the section that we're entering into here uh, in this way. He says, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he's, he's capturing now what we found Jesus saying to the Pharisees and showing that the, the tables are divided. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. Kind of this interpretation then of how these commandments work. But I'd like just to kind of maybe look at it a little differently because I think as we looked at the fifth commandment last week, honor father and mother, we realize that the first four commandments really call us to honor God. They call, call us to live in a way where we're focusing on him in a right way. We honor him with our hearts, our eyes, our tongues, and our time. But the fifth commandment calls us to honor parents, right? Um, and then we come to these last uh, five commandments. And these last five commandments really are calling us to honor our fellow men. And so you have God, you have family, and then you have your fellow man kind of in that order. And it's interesting, isn't it, that the structure there flows through that fifth command. We talked about that last week, that the essential element in a family is training your, your children to honor not only father and mother, but even the authorities that God has placed in their lives. Here, however, we come to you shall not murder. And I would like to suggest to you that the sixth commandment teaches us that God's people are not to murder in heart or in deed. We're not to murder in heart or in deed. And I would like to look at this commandment under three headings. The commandment explained, the commandment diagnosed, and then the commandment applied. And quite frankly, this is not an easy thing to do because there's a lot of material in God's word that helps to uh, give us an understanding of what this commandment is about. And so I'm going to be touching on some things this morning that I'm not going to be able to give a full exposition about, but we're going to see how it all relates to this commandment. So let's jump in here to the commandment explained, the commandment explained. Now, unfortunately, the sixth commandment has suffered through the years uh, distortion, abuse, a misapplication, primarily due to its translation. For example, in the King James Version, this is how it reads, thou shalt not kill. And then some translations that are around that from a, from a time perspective, the RSV and the ASV say, you shall not kill. It's not until recently that translations 
um, like the, the New King James, the, the New American Standard Version, uh, the NIV or the ESV, translate this command as you shall not murder. And you say, well, what's the big deal? I mean, are you, are you kind of, you know, making a big deal out of nothing? What's really the difference here? Well, you shall not kill is much broader in its category and its kind of its, its shadow than the expression you shall not murder. And so it's important to recognize that this idea of you shall not murder is actually more accurate than you shall not kill. But you can see how if it's just you shall not kill, how that could cause some confusion. The Hebrew is actually only two words. One word, no. The next word, murder. No, murder. Now, in the Hebrew language, there are about six or seven words used that describe the termination of life. But the word that is used here, ratzach, is almost always used to describe intentional, premeditated homicide. So it condemns the deliberate, malicious, and unlawful taking of a life. But it does not condemn the killing of another human being outright. Okay, so we, we need to understand then just what this is talking about. I'll, I'll say it one more time. It, it, is, it, is, it is condemning the deliberate, malicious, and unlawful taking of a life. And we'll have to tease that out as to what it looks like. Now, because of the confusion through the years the, or the misapplication of um, the Sixth Commandment, we need to consider what the Sixth Commandment doesn't prohibit. Now, I don't usually talk about, you know, telling you what something is not in the text. In fact, it's one of those things that preachers are told not to do. You know, you heard the story, of the, the, you know, the, about old Mother Hubbard, you know, who had something in the cupboard, and you open up the cupboard, and you're, you're telling everyone what's not there. Well, people don't want to know what's not there. They want to know what's there, right? And we'll get that. But the problem is, it's, it's helpful for us to know what it isn't meaning because many times what it isn't meaning is presented as if the Sixth Commandment actually is applying to that. So let's walk our way through, uh, I think there's five, um, five ways or five um, uh, responses here to the Sixth Commandment that really do not apply to it. First of all, it's the killing of animals, the killing of animals. The Sixth Commandment doesn't prohibit the killing of animals. I mean, you've probably seen the videos, you know, on YouTube or whatever of some activists walking into, I don't know, a Chick-fil-A or a Kentucky Fried Chicken and saying, you know, you shouldn't eat chicken. Chicken are just like us. They're living creatures. And they, they want to protest and stop people buying chicken. Uh, so you have, you have PETA and the ASPCA who might stand in protest with a sign that appeals to the Sixth Commandment that says, thou shalt not kill. And so they see kill as this blanket statement to talk about we should not kill animals. But of course, as I have explained, the Sixth Commandment is not just talking about killing in general. It's talking about a specific, malicious, deliberate, premeditated act against a human being. And it's that word murder. And friends, please understand this. Killing an animal is not the same thing as killing a human being. And when we allow those things to balance out, we are not honoring God. And we're not honoring the image of God that has uniquely been placed into mankind. 
it certainly is not murder. Secondly, this is not talking about death that is due to war. You know, for a number of years, I came out here to California and I was pastoring, and you know, I, I'm still trying to learn California at that point in time. And I was trying to learn the colleges as my kids were thinking about where to go to school. And I was just really perplexed by this one school in Fresno. And it was called Fresno Pacific. And I thought to myself, look, why would Fresno want to identify with the ocean? I mean, it's Fresno, it's in the valley. Why would Fresno be identified with Pacific? It doesn't make any sense to me, right? Until I realized that it was a Christian school that was founded by pacifists, all right? Fresno Pacific. I mean, you understand how the confusion can be there. Now, pacifists believe you should not go to war. Why? Because you don't want to actually kill. But friends, hear this. There is a place for a just war. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 10 through 13, here is what it says. And I would encourage you to get your Bibles at least out to Exodus. You might not have flipped it to Deuteronomy. We're going to spend a little bit of time in Exodus and Deuteronomy here in this section, and you'll be uh, happy to follow along, I think. But in, in Deuteronomy chapter 20, and I'll begin at verse 10, it says this, when you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. In other words, the goal of war was always peace. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all of its males to the sword. The goal on the front end was peace. But if there is continual violence against your people, then you have the freedom then to step into warfare. Now, friends, war is sometimes necessary to defend peace as well as to defend the innocent. And a cursory glance at the Old Testament will reveal that it did not prohibit warfare. In fact, God oftentimes sent his people into battle and identified himself as the warrior God who would fight for them. And if we were to think about Romans 13, where the Apostle Paul, in his argument there, says we need to be submissive to authorities because they are duly appointed to be the agents of God's wrath to protect the innocent. There's a place, then, for governments to exercise war. And we further kind of think it through because Jesus, when he, um, when he encountered the centurion in particular, didn't say to him, Go and sin no more. And by the way, if you're really, really serious about following me, then you need to stop being a soldier in the Roman army. Now, in fact, when Jesus interacts with, with the soldiers, here's what we find. They say, what shall we do? And he says, do not exhort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be content with your wages. He doesn't say quit the army because warfare is immoral. In fact, neither the gospel call nor the discipleship imperatives ever demand that soldiers confess Christ and then resign from the army. That's not what Scripture teaches. And when Jesus tells Peter to put away the sword, he's not making a blanket statement about the use of, of armies or, or weapons to provide peace and protection for citizens. What he's saying is, and what he's telling Peter is, the kingdom of God does not come through violence. And so, friends, it's important for us to understand 
This is not talking about death as a result of warfare. Third, um, it's not talking about self-defense. In fact, Exodus chapter 22, you just read a couple of verses there. Exodus 22, verses 2 through 3, it says this, If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. In other words, the person who kills him is not found guilty of murder. This is a thief. He's breaking into a territory that is not his own. He is committing a crime. But if you notice verse 3, but if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay if he has nothing, then he shall be sold uh, for his theft. The idea there is this. If, if it's clear by those who are watching that there was opportunity for that person to not kill that thief, but he goes ahead and does it anyway, then it's murder. Because now he's choosing to do something evil rather than simply um, uh, have the man kind of uh, arrested for his crimes. So it's not talking about self-defense. Self-defense is a just cause for death in the right circumstances. The next one is manslaughter. Manslaughter. That's a lovely word, isn't it? Manslaughter. These last two, manslaughter and capital punishment, uh, we can somewhat take together because of what we have in God's word. Again, Exodus chapter 21. I just want you to read with me a few verses here. Verses 12 through 14. Exodus 21, verses 12 through 14. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to get to death. Okay, wow. Uh, we keep reading. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Now, there's some context to what's going on here, but I want you to hear the heart of what's taking place here. There are three categories revealed for us in this text. First of all, in verse 13, there's this accidental killing, right? He did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand. In other words, his death came about by the providence of God. In our context, that would be he happened to be on the receiving end of a traffic accident and he died. And no one was at fault for the traffic accident. These things just happened. It was all part of the providence of God. Maybe someone's tire, you know, their, their rod broke and the tire falls off and the car goes off the side of the road and it hits a person and they die. There's no malicious intent whatsoever. It's all part of the providence of God. Or something fell on a person from a tall building. Or the person is, is struck by a felled tree. These are all things that, that are part of the providence of God. There's no intent to kill. And so this person is not, is not, has not risen to the level of murder, all right? Then there's, secondly, in verse 14, intentional killing. Notice what it says. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, aha, there's premeditation going on here, right? See that? It's a different kind of killing. There's accidental killing. There's now intentional killing, which would be murder. And then look at verse 14 and the last part here. All right, but if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may, what, die. This is judicial killing. In other words, this person is responsible and guilty of the crime of premeditated murder, and so you are to take them and you are to execute them judicial execution. Now, friends, we can turn also to the book of 
Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, and in this section, verses 4 through 7, we're told something that helps kind of fill in the gaps of what's happening there in Exodus 21. It says in verse 4 of Deuteronomy 19, this is the provision for the manslayer. Again, this is the person who, who is committing um, manslaughter, okay? Who by fleeing there may save his life. Well, where is he fleeing to? Well, God established that cities of refuge would be established that were equal distances apart so that if something like this happened, and, and the example here in Deuteronomy, a guy is in the woods with his friend and he's chopping down a tree and in his swing, the ax head flies off, hits the tree and then bounces off to the, his friend's head and kills him as a result. No malicious intent whatsoever. It was an accident that happened. But, but based on the, the law, this person now could be, have his, his, his life avenged. His family could come and chase after him. So the person who was the, the one who was, the, I want to say, responsible for the, for the actual swing and the accent flying off would then immediately take off for the city of refuge. And in the city of refuge, he would then listen, they would listen to his story and determine whether he was guilty or not. And if he was found to be not guilty, then he had safety there in the city of refuge. Why? Because he didn't deserve to die. He did not have any willful, malicious, premeditated um, desire to kill his friend. So that's manslaughter, and this commandment is not talking about that. And closely tied to that, then, of course, is capital punishment or judicial killing. Okay, and so it's, it's worth us then recognizing that these go hand in hand. But as we think about capital punishment, we need to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6 in particular. And this is what we find. God is speaking here, and he says, Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. So this, again, the, the idea here is that this is a willful, premeditated, unlawful shedding of blood. And why is this so important? It says here at the end of Genesis 9 and verse 6, for God made man in his own image. Now hear this, friends. Capital punishment for murder was not considered an assault on the image of God, but a defense of his image. The reason executions take place because of the crime of murder is because society is saying you have you have tarnished the image of God in man. If we don't do anything, we are actually sticking our nose up at God. We are dishonoring him. Now, in Exodus 21, we find the well-known passage which says, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe, and so on. And of course, uh, Mahatma Gandhi came along and he said, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. And people listen to that and said, ah, it makes a lot of sense. Maybe it's not the greatest commandment after all. Maybe we shouldn't listen to what the Christian God is talking about here. But then we must understand that in, in this context, context in the Near uh, East um, context, what we have here is actually a humane law. Let me explain it. It said an eye for an eye, a tooth for tooth. Rather than your head for an eye, 
your family for a tooth, your tribe for your offense. In other words, the point and the principle being laid out here is that the punishment must fit the crime, not exceed it. And so God is establishing in his law here some parameters and some guidelines to help us carry out justice in a right way, but not in an excessive way. Life for life, no less, no more. The point here is this. God, in his mind, considers life to be sacred. Man is made in the image of God. So when you deliberately do violence towards someone to kill them, you've assaulted God because you've assaulted his image. So those are some ways commonly some people might want to apply the sixth commandment, but the sixth commandment really isn't talking about that. But now we want to take some time having explained this to consider now what I'm calling the commandment diagnosed. We've established that, that murder here is, is any premeditated, deliberate, and unlawful taking of a life. But now we want to take some time to, to consider Jesus' exposition of this sixth commandment. And that happens for us in Matthew chapter 5. And this is helpful for us because it begins then to, to teach us something about this idea of murder, that it is not simply about the act. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5. And we'll begin reading at verse 21, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 21. I would encourage you to go to, to turn with me and so you can see um, what it says there. And first of all, I want you to notice that Jesus' diagnosis here is given for us. He's going to say the heart of murder is something. And notice what it says in verse 21 through verse 22. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. So he's referring back then to the sixth commandment. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to hell fire. So when Jesus says, but I tell you, he's taking his listeners to the heart of the sixth commandment. He's not just talking about the act. He's talking about the heart behind the act. And he identifies these three issues of the heart that the sixth commandment is confronting. Anger, insults, and calling someone you fool. And there's some indication that what he's doing here is he's, he's applying now these responses to the layers of of, of courts in the context that he's speaking into. So in our context, that would be, you know, your local courts, then it'll be your state courts, and then your Supreme Court. So it seems to be that kind of progression going on here. And so there's this attitude, this heart attitude that he's addressing. The Apostle Paul, in his first letter, summarizes the words of Jesus in the following lay. Listen to what he says. This is 1 John chapter 3 and verse 15. Here's what he says. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So we have these, we have this, uh, this, this hatred now that is at the core. This hatred is summarized in these three words: anger, insult, 
and, and what he, where he says, you fool. And so what Jesus is telling us is that obedience to the sixth commandment starts in the heart. The resulting act of murder is first given birth in the heart. And that is consistent with what we've already read about murder. Back in Exodus 21, it was a willful attack. Something happens in the heart before the actual attack takes place. In Exodus 22, he has risen on him. This was, this, was, this was a movement. This is something that happened out of the heart. It's not just the act. There's something taking place in the heart before the act takes place. So Jesus is getting to this place where he's saying this murder, this hatred is actually happening in your heart. I don't know about you. There's a show on PBS every once in a while called Father Brown Mysteries. I don't know if you've watched it at all. Um, but for the most part, it's a decent show. One of the things that's interesting about this is, is Father Brown, who is, who is the one who's kind of like the detective, but he is also a priest. Um, he, when, he, when he pauses and thinks about what crime has been committed, he pauses and he thinks to himself by asking the question or starting with the question or, or saying to himself, I am the person who committed the murder. So he's putting himself in the mind of the person and he's saying, I am capable of it. And if I'm capable of it, then what would I do? And how would I respond? And the point there is this, that we all need to remember that we are all capable of the most terrible sin. All of us who are here today are potential murderers. Now, I don't have in mind, as I'm looking out at you, you know, a bunch of Vikings with axes going on a rampage. I'm not talking about that. But we're all murderers because it begins where? It begins in our heart. It begins with the attitude of the heart. So we may not actually have a gun or a knife or a car in order to kill someone, but we've all struggled in our hearts with hatred and anger and resentment toward our fellow man to some degree or another. And friends, it's only by God's grace, the ministry of the word in our hearts, and the restraint of the Holy Spirit that holds us back from dropping off the cliff and pursuing the sinful desires of our hearts. Friends, have you ever been guilty of gritting your teeth and saying, I could murder him? Maybe you don't say it out loud. Some young mothers might be honest and confess as their child has screamed nonstop through the entire night, night after night, that they think to themselves, I can have a little better understanding of why people abuse their babies. Because they, they feel something rising up in them. Or when a, a couple is struggling in their marriage and there's been lots of arguing and shouting and painful words that are shared simply just to make the pain go away, one spouse might think to themselves, if if, if only this, this person were in an accident in some way, shape, or form, then the pain would stop. All those are ideas of murder, friends. The goal might be relief. The goal might be the pain would disappear. But they're all heartfelt thoughts about murder. So this is Jesus' diagnosis. The battle for obedience to the sixth commandment rages in our hearts way before we find ourselves acting it out. Left to ourselves, we will nurse hatred, anger, 
bitterness and resentment until it boils over. But Jesus, like the good physician he is, doesn't merely deal with the symptom. He's dealing with the disease. He's dealing with the diagnosis of our heart condition. Now, we continue on in this passage because we don't only have Jesus' diagnosis, we also have his prognosis. This is what he says we should do. This is the antidote then for murder. Look at verse 23 of Matthew chapter 5. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. He's saying, look, your attitude of anger and hatred towards your brother cannot coexist with worship. It cannot and it does not. But let me tell you how you can change your status. And the way you can change your status, he says, is be reconciled to your brother. There's an urgency here. There's an urgency to confront the heart condition that Jesus is revealing and to replace it with a new heart condition that says, I want reconciliation. I want to pursue the reconciliation that God is calling me to here. So friends, we must listen to what Jesus is telling us that is at the heart of this commandment and fight against our tendency to sin, replacing it with God's gospel-driven attitude of reconciliation. So if you are at odds with someone and you're tempted to say, you know what, the ball's in their court. I've done all I need to do. I'm not contacting them to seek reconciliation. It may be that your heart is so clouded by your sinful anger and resentment. You actually may be justifying your sinful heart by putting the blame or the ball in their court. Go before God. Seek clarity about your heart condition. Talk to a godly friend, an elder, your pastor, or someone that is going to help you gain some biblical perspective and accountability to move forward with reconciliation. If not, friends, you'll you'll begin to wither away. Now, I say that because we've all met angry, bitter people, haven't we? And there was, there was something happening in their heart, some anger, some bitterness. But that, that anger and bitterness in the heart moved from the heart into their body language, into their facial expressions, so much so that they just seem haggard by their stubbornness and bitterness. And friends, there is a solution. It's be reconciled. Pursue reconciliation. Now, it may not happen, but your heart will be changed when you're obedient to the Lord and his instruction. So friends, this is, this is the, the, the diagnosis that Jesus gives. He gives now this, this exhortation, this exposition of the sixth commandment and says it's an issue ultimately of the heart. And so we need to see that. And this is where we enter into the sixth commandment and we say, we're all guilty. We've all had attitudes like that toward people at some time or another. We have been guilty of this commandment. Now, more specifically, we get now to this third point, and that is this, the commandment applied. So having established the act of murder is the willful, intentional, unlawful killing of another human, and that the seed of murder is something that starts in the heart, we now want to consider how we might see the sixth commandment 
applied in our contemporary context. In other words, how do we see um, what the Sixth Commandment does prohibit? And there's really four responses that I want to give this morning. Um, and, and we're going to settle a little bit of time here. I'm not going to get into all the details, but again, each of these, each of these areas have a sermon on their own, but I'm going to highlight them in some way, shape, or form to help us understand this is what is being talked about. First of all, then, obviously, we're talking here about what we consider to be homicide, the willful, intentional, and unlawful killing of another human being. And friends, it remains a problem in our society. The big surprise in 2019 was that the homicide rates in the Bay Area were down, according to the San Francisco Chronicle, in an article on January 3rd, 2020, the homicides in the Bay Area dropped from 276 in 2016 to 210 in 2019. And, and, and the highest homicide rates were in the cities of Oakland, 75, San Francisco, 41, and San Jose, 34. Now, the tone of this article was actually somewhat celebratory. Um, and I understand what they're saying. It's, it's progress, right, in this article. But I don't know, 75 in Oakland is still a lot of people. 41 in San Francisco is still a lot of people. However, according to the recent studies, homicides in 2020 are already surpassing those in 2019. Friends, it's still there. It's still around us. This past June in the city of Vallejo, where homicides are trending to be the highest in over 10 years, a group of shooters opened fire at a toddler's birthday party, wounding three, including a 10-year-old child, and killing two women. Now, what kind of evil thinks that such actions are okay? What kind of thinking says, you know what, we're going to drive by, oh, these kids are all out there playing because they're having a birthday party, and we're going to, you know, let the guns go. What, what kind of evil thinks that? Well, it's the kind of evil that this Sixth Commandment's talking about. It's addressing the kind of evil that is in the heart of man to willfully and intentionally and unlawfully kill another human being. What kind of evil has such disregard for life and the image of God in man? Now, friends, our society might want to blame the homicides on the presence of guns, as if the people drove up and the guns just went off. What's going on here, guys? I don't know. The guns just kind of decided to pop themselves out the window and start firing. I mean, what's up with that? The problem is the guns. No, the problem isn't the guns. Certainly, there's an argument to say that there can be an addressing of the gun issue. But the problem is not the guns. The problem is the person who has the guns and what they're seeking to do with the guns. The problem goes back to the heart, doesn't it? Why are they doing what they're doing? Because something in themselves says, this is good, this is right. And friends, it's evil. So something happens in the heart of man that disregards the law written even on the conscience by God. Go all across the world and you will find in communities that murder is considered to be evil. Why? Because God's written it on the heart. And he begins to see, this person begins to see life of a particular person as insignificant or as to gain his own personal agenda. 
So think through this with me. If it's a gang member, it may be in retaliation, but he has already devalued another human being simply because they belong to another gang. If it's a mugging, the person is saying in their heart, getting my desires met is more important than the life that I'm about to take. See, these are all things that are happening in the heart. So we must recognize, first of all, that homicide is being considered here. And we must recognize that that it, it begins in the heart. And all of us here today can be blinded by our emotions and the deceitfulness of sin and which can ultimately lead to committing murder. And again, if it's, it's just by the, the, the grace of God that we are not those people. Secondly, and now it becomes a little bit more delicate, and it's the issue of suicide. According to the Center of Disease Control, more than 48,000 people died from suicide in the United States in 2018. Now, that should shock you. Maybe this, this stat will help you think it through. That's one death every 11 minutes. That should break your heart. We're talking about suicide. We're talking about people taking their own lives. For whatever the purpose is, that should, that should cause us just to be consumed with sadness. Now, to even mention that suicide is a sin can be extremely painful for those families who have experienced it. As a pastor, it would be extremely insensitive to walk into the home of a family that's just lost a loved one to suicide and begin by shepherding them by saying these words, well, you know that suicide is a sin. Uh, Pastors don't often get slapped silly, but that's one where I think it might be legitimate, all right? They just don't say that right away. There's all sorts of things surrounding why someone would come to the place that they would consider taking their life is a legitimate option. My words may be true, but there's compassion that's needed in the situation. The heart that is suffering without relief can drift to the place of despair where it would seem that the only escape is to end one's life. And so we understand that they're no longer thinking clearly. They have stopped thinking gospel-centeredly. They've stopped thinking about what would God desire for them or what does he say, or even giving him the place of authority in their life. They simply are wanting an escape, a relief. So friends, ultimately, we need to recognize, having said all that, that suicide is self-murder. It denies that God is the one, or the only one, I should say, who has the right to decide when our life is taken. And just like we've heard Jesus say that murder is first and foremost an issue of the heart, so suicide comes from the heart, a despairing heart, a depressed heart, an angry heart, a hopeless heart, a shameful heart, an unbelieving heart. Now, as we look at Scripture, there's five instances of suicide in Scripture. And in each of these cases, the suicide takes place in the context of either shame or defeat. But if you look at some other characters in Scripture, you might say more nobler characters who at one point in their interaction with God just wish that God would take their life away. And I'm talking about, in particular, Jonah and Job. How does God respond? 
well, he, re- he, he receives their requests in an unfavorable way. That's not what he's going to do. And those men felt it. They, they, they wanted it. They, they, they wanted just to escape from the suffering they were going through. We understand that. But God still spoke into their situation and did not speak favorably of their requests. Now, friends, we must comfort and counsel those who struggle with suicidal thoughts with great compassion, care, and understanding. The struggles of life can be overwhelming for some. And what they desperately need, but they can't seem to embrace, is that there is hope in Christ. That all the shame, the defeat, the hopelessness can be reconciled through Christ in the gospel. Now, I appreciate the words of Julie Gossick, who wrote for the Journal of Biblical Counseling many years ago. She was a wife and a mother, but she suffered through the suicides of five family members. Here's what she says. It's in an article in the Journal of Biblical Counseling. Suicide is not a genetic trait, nor is it a family curse. Suicide is a sinful choice made by an individual. The statement is neither unloving nor disrespectful. It is the truth. I dearly love my family members that committed suicide, but the choice, their choices were sinful and not righteous. And she adds after that that she intends her words to be loving so that other people in a dark place who might be considering taking their lives would, if there are other, no other restraints, perhaps be restrained by the law of God. Friends, compassion and truth must go hand in hand. And so we don't just stomp our fist on the pulpit and say, suicide is sin. We, we acknowledge that it's sin, but we seek to have compassion for people who are struggling with that, to show them that that is not the solution, that that is not the answer that their hope is in Christ. So homicide, suicide. The next one uh, we'll call euthanasia, but it's uh, ultimately assisted suicide. Now, I mean, just a a little bit of, if there is a little bit of humor in this, let me just share this. When I first came to the United States, I was, what, 16 years old. I jumped into into school and I was in this this class and I can't remember what the name of the class was, but it was kind of like a sociology class for high schoolers. And um, the teacher said at the end of class, you know, um, tomorrow we're going we're gonna to talk about um, euthanasia. So make sure you come ready to talk about that. And honestly, I, I had no idea um, what she ultimately meant. I was thinking I've never been to Asia. I've, I've never interacted with youth in Asia at all and totally just had no idea. All right. Come to find out what she's talking about is the actual killing off of people in their old age. Um, of course, um, I moved out from California from a place called Waterford, Michigan. And um, Waterford, Michigan was made famous by a man by the name of Dr. Kevorkian, who was also known as Dr. Death. Now, some of you younger generation have no idea what we're talking about here, but a number of years ago, he was like main in the news. And there's a particular street in uh, Waterford, Michigan, where his, where he, he committed his crimes, assisted the suicide of 15 people in, on that particular street. But ultimately, at the, toward the end of his life, he confessed that he claimed to have assisted at least 130 patients to end their lives. 
And friends, what's sad is that the studies of his victims that took place afterwards revealed that many of the people that Kevorkian helped to commit suicide did not have debilitating or life-threatening diseases. In fact, many did not have any illnesses at all. They just wanted to end their lives. But to Jack Kevorkian, being terminally ill didn't matter. He said in an interview with CNN, this is in 2010, what difference does it make if someone is terminal? We're all terminal. And so he believed as a doctor that he was there to help people who wanted to end their lives to end their lives. Just put on the mask, all your problems will go away. Now, friends, the whole idea and practice of assisted suicide is beginning to take root, especially in our Western context. In Switzerland, they allow physician-assisted suicide without a minimum age requirement, diagnosis, or statement of the person's symptoms. In other countries like Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg, and Canada, um, assisted suicide is allowed under a variety of set of circumstances. Here in the United States, at present, there are 10 states that have laws or court rulings allowing doctor-assisted suicide for terminally ill patients. Now, I think it's sadly ironic that during the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands, Dutch physicians refused to obey orders by Nazi troops to let the elderly and the terminally ill die. Yet in 2001, Holland became the first country to give legal status to doctor-assisted suicide. Malcolm Muggeridge, who's a British reporter, rightly observed, it took only one generation to transform a war crime into an act of compassion. Okay? There's a drift in society away from the ethic that we find revealed for us in these Ten Commandments. It's the value of a human life. I appreciate what Kevin DeYoung says. He says, how can we try to prevent suicide among teenagers and young people and encourage it among the sick and elderly? I often see signs in schools that read, say no to suicide or thinking about suicide, there is help. How can we promote that message to students and then put forward a very different message to the elderly? We are to do what we can to preserve and to protect all innocent life. He goes on to say, we must not let foggy definitions of compassion cloud our thinking. This is the key distinction. We're not talking about the termination of treatment, but the termination of life. Sometimes people hear that spiel about suicide and say, look, I don't want to be put on a respirator. I don't want to have a machine do my life for me. That's not what euthanasia laws are about. My friends, when my father was in his last days, he was dying. He was in the hospital fighting with uh, myeloma, which is a form of cancer. Um, he had a very frank conversation with the doctor. He was in ICU, and he said, doctor, is the only reason that I'm staying alive here in ICU because of the medication you're giving me? And the doctor responded, yes, if we stop the medication, you'll have about an hour and a half or so to live. And over the next couple of hours, my father in clear mind, made it a point to contact his children and to talk to his grandchildren. And then at a point in time, and with the guidance of the doctor, they 
stopped giving him the medication, and a little over an hour later, he died. Now, friends, that is not assisted suicide. That was letting the natural process of dying take its course. Now, I know all of us, as we, as we think back to the fifth commandment, where we're told here to honor father and mother, and we're talking about the care of our parents. Many times as a pastor, I've been with people who are just really struggling with what to do because my parent is on a respirator, they're on some, some machine keeping them alive. What should I do? If I pull the plug, am I killing them? Am I assisting them in suicide? These are hard issues, aren't they? And friends, there are, there are solutions. What, what I'm talking to you about with my dad is simply allowing the natural course of life to take place and the person to walk from you know, from this earth into the next life. It's not suicide by any means. Now, friends, what has happened in countries that have begun to allow euthanasia to take place is that what began as voluntary euthanasia morphs into involuntary euthanasia. In particular, with the insurance companies saying things like, we're not going to pay for that treatment to extend your life another six months or a year, you can just take these pills and end your life. In other words, when you become a burden to your family, a burden to the state, and a burden to the insurance companies, ending your life is no longer a voluntary matter. And friends, that is an offense to the Sixth Commandment and ultimately to God who created man in his own image. Now, there's lots more to say on that topic, and there's lots of complications that are in there. But at the heart of it, it is an offense against the Sixth Commandment. And then finally, this last one, which I think is pretty clear to us all here, but it's, it's a abortion, it, homicide, suicide, and then feticide, which we, would, we typically call abortion. It's the taking of a life in the womb. In Exodus 21, verse 14, we find the words, you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand. We read that earlier. In other words, the penalty should reflect the crime. But what we, we may not realize is that the context of these words are given because two men have been fighting, and in their fighting, they have accidentally um, hit, struck a pregnant woman so that the baby in her womb dies. In other words, there's punishment for the loss of life of the baby that is still in the womb. In other words, God thinks of that child in the womb as a viable, living human being created in his image. And so scripture is very clear that life begins at concession. And, and not only that, friends, it's a scientific fact the psalmist says, for you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. Psalm 139, verse 13. And of course, we have the famous encounter between Mary and Elizabeth when the baby in Elizabeth's womb, as John the Baptist, leaps at hearing the great news that Mary is going to have this, this baby who ultimately would be Christ. Now, commenting on Exodus 21, which shall we, we, we look there, about the, the, the woman who loses that child in her womb. John Calvin says this, For the fetus, though enclosed in the womb of its mother, 
is already a human being, and it, it is almost a monstrous crime to rob it of the life which it has not yet begun to enjoy. If it seems more horrible to kill a man in his own house than in a field, because a man's house is his, his place of most secure refuge, it ought surely to be deemed more atrocious to destroy a fetus in the womb before it has come to light. Archbishop Ramsey, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury, wrote about this, and he says, we have to assert as normative the general inviolability of the fetus, which is to be reverenced as the embryo of a life capable of coming to reflect the glory of God. Now, here, here's what happens in our society. Contemporary society says, well, we moved away from life beginning at conception. We're, we're not actually going to argue that case anymore. We're actually going to move the goalposts. We're going to change the language here. And now what's happened is they say, although life may begin at conception, true personhood begins at some time other than the beginning of biological life. So now the argument is, well, when is this, when is this you know, seed and, and egg, when does it actually become a person? Well, as Christians, we're not arguing the case because we believe that bound together with the biology and the spiritual side, the soul is life, and that happens at conception, and that personhood begins when life begins. But society wants to kick the goalpost down, down, you know, down the field and, and, and try and frame it considerably differently here. So, friends, the, the, the purposefully knowingly, deliberately, and selfishly terminate the life. To do all that of this child in the womb is a bold and glaring act of murder and an offense to the image of God in man. You know, there's a story about two doctors working in the same hospital together, and one doctor went to another doctor to consult over a situation that he was facing and he says, I have a case put to put before you for possible termination, termination of, of a baby. He said, the father was uh, syphilitic, the mother was uh, tuberculous. The first child of the four um, were, who were already born was born blind. The second was born dead. The third was born deaf and dumb. And the fourth was born tuberculous. And she's expecting a fifth what would you do? Well, looking at all that track record, the other doctor said, well, I would almost certainly terminate the pregnancy. And his colleague said to him, well, I don't think the musical world would ever forgive you because you would have murdered Beethoven. Now, the point there is this, that society puts value on life based on their terms. God puts value on life based on his terms. The question is, Whose terms are we going to actually listen to? Whose terms are going to dictate how we think and how we behave and how we interact with this sixth commandment? Now, friends, it wouldn't surprise me that there are those of you here this morning or listening via live stream who are extremely uncomfortable right now because you are ashamed and tormented by a past that includes either getting an abortion yourself or helping someone get one. And you might be thinking to yourself, how do I reconcile such a violation of God's sixth commandment? 
friends, be encouraged and be comforted because God, through his son, Jesus Christ, grants forgiveness for the sin of murder, even the murder of the unborn. Recognizing the truth, acknowledging it before God that what you have done is murder, is the way you confess then to God and then you repent of that sin and you can, you can press on with your life knowing that although you committed this heinous crime before God, you are now forgiven for it. Let me just mention to you, the Apostle Paul was a terrible murderer, yet saved by the grace of God. The gospel is for sinful people. The gospel is not for people who have it all together. The gospel is for those of us who have committed horrible sins, crimes. But he, recognized, he reconciles us through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, bringing things to a close, I think it's worth us noting that each of the Ten Commandments are either given in the positive or the negative. Some say you shall do something or you shall not do something. So for each positive command, there's also a corresponding negative command. And for each negative command, there's also a corresponding positive command. Now, the sixth commandment is given in the negative, isn't it? And so we must ask ourselves, since God is against murder, what is or are the corresponding actions and heart attitudes that God requires um, in the place of murder? And I would invite you now to turn to 1 John chapter 3. We were there um, just a little bit ago, but as we look at this final passage of Scripture, uh, I would put to you that it sums up both the question and the answer. So 1 John chapter 3 and verse 12 I'm going to read the whole thing, but just be asking yourself the question, what's the question, what's the answer? He says in verse 12, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of, this, uh, out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So let's just put all this together. This passage, John is saying to us, don't be like Cain who murdered his brother. Instead, be like Christ who gave his life for the brothers. Or maybe to say it with a little bit more clarity, Cain, in an act of hatred, took his brother's life. Christ, in an act of love, gave his life for his brethren. So we can say that God's people are not to murder in heart or deed. That's where we began this morning. But instead be marked by love, compassion, and kindness toward their fellow man. Again, let me say it. God's people are not to murder in heart or deed, but 
be marked by love and compassion and kindness toward their fellow man. Now, what kind of person are you? What kind of person are you going to be? What kind of person have you been? Now, you can be all of these, filled with love or hatred, filled with evil or righteousness, filled with selfishness or sacrifice. But friends, the gospel only calls us to one path, the path of love, righteousness, and sacrifice. Friends, this is the sixth commandment. And the sixth commandment not only is there to show us our sinfulness, but it's there also to show us how we are to interact with mankind in such a way that we are not violating that sixth commandment. Love, compassion, kindness, and those are just a few of the words to describe it, but they're sufficient to make the point. Lord, help us today. As we began this morning, we may not have thought that this is something that is close to us. And yet, Lord, as your son came and spoke directly and expounded on this sixth commandment, we understand that that murder is an issue of the heart. But Lord, you're calling us to evaluate our own hearts, to evaluate the things that are there that are festering, that have been festering, and and to replace them through the gospel with the kind of attributes and attitudes that reflect what it means to be your children. And Lord, as as we see the sin of murder played out in our context, may we speak to it biblically, truthfully, compassionately, carefully. But Lord, may we, may we make sure that we speak to it. And may we guard our hearts from the kind of attitudes that truly are the seed for being guilty of the sixth commandment. Oh Lord, cultivate in us hearts that want to please you. Hearts that want to further your gospel. Hearts that want to encourage the brethren hearts that want to live for your glory, hearts, Lord, that truly want to honor our fellow man. Would you be glorified now, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen.